Hello and welcome to the Feathers Pub, a short stroll from the Palace of Westminster. I think this is probably one of the only pubs in Westminster that has air conditioning on one of the hottest days of the year, so we're glad to be here. This is the first edition of On The House, a new podcast where we'll be picking over the political week with some of our fellow MPs, friends and friendly rivals from across the parties and the spectrum. It's Thursday evening. The House of Commons has broken up for this year's, re- uh, this year's summer recess. So we're doing what comes naturally to us, talking about politics, even when the House of Commons has risen. This is an experiment for us. We thought we'd get at least one edition done before Parliament rises for re- recess. And it turns out it's the right week to do it. A new Prime Minister, a new leader of the Liberal Democrats, and some ministerial resignations. So lots for us to discuss. So firstly, I'll introduce myself. I am Sam Jima. I'm the Conservative Member of Parliament for East Surrey. I've I've held a number of ministerial positions over the years, education and childcare, prisons and probation, uh, universities, science research and innovation. I resigned uh, from the government at the end of 2018 over Theresa May's Brexit deal, and I backed a second referendum. I stood in the Conservative leadership contest, clearly didn't win, but it wasn't boring. Hi, I'm uh, Philip Lee, Member of Parliament for Bracknell in Berkshire, occasional practising doctor. Um, Like Sam, I've been a minister before. In fact, I actually have only been a minister once, unlike Sam, who's had a stellar career of junior ministerial appointments. Um, We met, we met Sam actually across the road from here. It seems appropriate that we're in this pub because not too far away as ministers, we were looking after various portfolios in the Justice Department. Um, as Sam's already said, um, we started the Right to Vote campaign organisation at Christmas, which ran for about six months in an attempt to try to persuade enough Conservative colleagues to, to vote for a second referendum. Um, I don't know whether we failed or not. It, it, may, it, may, it may be appropriate, actually, with our guest, who knows how to fail, apparently, according to her podcast. <laughs> um, in fact, actually, I sort of reflect upon uh, the last year that we've had, Sam, and uh, I think, you know... Yeah, we, we resigned and I think, you know, I was first over the top, you were shortly afterwards and I think we should feel proud about that because we've, we've backed principles, which is not fashionable at the moment in Westminster. Um, but yes, have we succeeded in persuading enough people so far to, to take the issue of Brexit back to the British people? No, we haven't. So I suppose we failed. So when we introduce our guest later, we'll be interested to know what she thinks. About I, I, don't think, I don't think we've failed uh, yet, Philip. But I think one of the things I like very much about Philip is in the department we used to have these meetings um, vexing our anxieties of the direction about the direction of Brexit. Yeah, unofficial meetings. Unofficial they, were, they, meetings. Were, they were never minuted. They're never, they're never minuted. And um, at the end of the day we both did what we said yeah. as in we were both concerned about the direction we thought it wasn't delivering what it said on the tin and um, you resigned first I followed but it's probably one of the few interactions with my colleagues where what people said they believed translated into action. So I respect you. Yeah, I mean, when I look back, I mean, we were talking like that before Christmas 2017-18. I think we could see the direction of travel uh, wasn't right. We certainly didn't feel that we could support it. Yet both of us wanted to stay in our jobs and, you know, get on with governing, and which is actually why we've all come into politics, isn't it, really, to make a difference. But there came a point where I couldn't continue. Um, 
and I don't regret it one little bit actually and I like to think that we got it right um, it's just we're just waiting for everyone else to catch up with us so yeah. is how I look at it true I mean I think Philip uh, probably they've had enough about uh, you and I we could talk about ourselves yeah, um, but, you know but we're <laughs> politicians we need to be self-obsessed that's the only way that you progress <laughs> for quite a while what do, you, what do you think about the election of a very pro-Brexit leader as uh, leader of our party I mean we all knew that Boris Johnson is um, going to be pro-Brexit but for me yeah. I think the last 24 hours has revealed a completely different side to it what do you reckon well, look, I mean, okay, the only reason I supported you, Sam, was you told me you were going to win. Um, and, uh, I'm glad you did. <laughs> seriously, though, look, it was obvious he was going to win. And the issue of Brexit and, others, and then also, I think, where the membership... I thought so the, are we, that's why you're here. Yeah, I, <laughs> I thought the comparison in Johnson's article in The Telegraph with the Apollo moon landing, the moonshot and the um, yes. backstop in Northern Ireland. It was all about, you know, we just got to believe that we, we, a man is capable of putting a person on the moon, which means we can develop alternative measures um, for the Northern Ireland border. And I thought to myself, no, OK, you need to have belief, you need to feel confident, you need to go for things a bit. That's what the whole JFK speech was about. But fundamentally, you needed experts. You needed people who could design a Saturn V rocket, who could actually design a computer that could be packed into a relatively small area, which at the time was quite remarkable. You needed incredibly brave people who were prepared to get on top of essentially a controlled explosion and go to the moon. You know, belief only goes so far. Exactly. And, I, and I'm, if there's one thing that I... Deep, what deeply frustrates me, and in fact, actually, as a minister, was I craved evidence for what we were doing. Why are we doing it? Um, because if you follow the evidence, I think you get to good policy. If you listen to experts and people who are experienced in the field at the coalface, you get to good policy. Um, that has to be the way forward. No, I think I think Philip is absolutely right, and um, evidence-based policy making seems to be. Um, absent nowadays. But um, um, Elizabeth, I, I want to know, you've spoken to so many politicians. Who stood out for you and why? So I spoke to Chris Patton, who is obviously no longer a politician, but had a long um, career in politics. And I loved interviewing him because he decided to talk personally to me. And I asked my guests to come up with three failures from their life that they don't mind discussing. So one of Lord Patton's was failing to, to keep hold of his seat in Bath. But one of his failures was his failure to have asked his wife to marry him earlier because he has such an enormous respect for... Philip is literally mouthing to me, I made that mistake. <laughs> <laughs> because he's married to my sister, so he knows which side his is buttered. I, I, I could say the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've all made a mistake not to marry your excellent wives earlier. But I thought that was so beautiful because it re revealed this sort of vulnerable, yeah. wonderful, honest, authentic side of him. And I have interviewed Jess Phillips for a forthcoming episode of How to Fail, spoiler alert, and she was completely fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, again, her failures were not just political. They went to the core of who she is as a person. And I think that's what we are lusting after in our politicians, is that seam of authenticity where you are unafraid to be yourselves. And that, that has led to the rise of the character politician, I'm putting that in inverted commas, yeah. which has, I think, been damaging. So that idea that you want to elect someone prime minister, you can have a pint with down the pub, but actually, you know, you also want someone with a grasp of detail. Yeah. But I also think it means that um, 
the, the sense of why people get into politics is tremendously important when you're a voter, to, to find out what motivates them and what their personal story is. So Jess was brilliant for that because she talks about how her brother was a heroin addict and how she had tried and failed to help him get clean on several occasions. So things like that have been really elucidating. And he's not a, a politician, but Alistair Campbell, again, spoke very openly about his mental health struggles and... Um, his battle with clinical depression and the fact that he was hospitalised, he was sectioned with a psychotic breakdown. And uh, I think things like that are enormously impactful because a lot of people struggle. And when you see someone who is quote unquote successful admit to that, it becomes very democratising and it makes you feel less alone as a listener. Now, I'm pretty sure you've interviewed the new Prime Minister for the Observer. Yes, correct, Philip. And I, I think it, and I, and it was in 2015, I yes. think. And you might not, but I went round for curry because um, the Prime Minister was obviously with, with the Prime Minister. Uh, with, well, well, he, Prime he Minister. was then a budding. He was the mayor, and he was just about to become the MP for Uxbridge. And uh, I got invited round for a curry. Didn't you, you get invited? You, sir? You've got a hotline. Yeah, hotline to and, Boris. And I, I remember going round. And I remember <laughs> going round to his home to have curry with a couple of colleagues. And and suffice to say, when I mentioned that my sister-in-law had interviewed. Um, suddenly, I was of much greater interest, Elizabeth, <laughs> at the table, because remind, tell Sam about this interview, because I thought it was a fantastic article. I commend this article to our listeners, particularly the last paragraph. Thank you. That was very kind of you. I want to know more about the curry after I finish this anecdote. So, yes. so you did the interview, he had the curry. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Who's really shaping the future, Sam? <laughs> I was sent to interview him for The Observer. He'd just written his book on Winston Churchill and he was mayor of London then. Um, and I went, and obviously I was writing for a left-leaning paper at the time, so I went armed with a sense of healthy scepticism, <laughs> determined not to be charmed by him, and then annoyingly was kind of charmed by him. But charmed by him in a slightly dangerous way because he ended up saying the most extraordinary things to me on the record. And so I ended the interview by Do share. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, I will. Because I still can't quite believe that this, that this happened, but I ended the interview by asking him about his sometimes somewhat sketchy relationship with the truth. So he was sacked from the Times for lying. Um, he was sacked by Michael Howard from the front bench for lying. And um, I put it to him that he might have been less than truthful about some of his extramarital affairs. And um, he sort of ummed and ahed, and he was like, well, the truth is a complicated thing. And I pushed him on it, and he ended up saying... He ended up quoting... Do you want to like, say that again? <laughs> the truth is a complicated thing. I paraphrase, but, he, but he, yeah. he was sort of saying that. And we were talking in the context of the Winston Churchill book he'd written, and Winston Churchill famously lied to Parliament when he thought it was in the best interests of the country during the war. And Boris Johnson quoted a line from Scarface and said, I think the best thing to say is, as Tony Montana says in Scarface, Tony Montana, coke dealer extraordinaire, who yes. was <laughs> up mountains of cocaine yes. um, and sells guns to Cuba. So as Tony Montana said, I tell the truth even when I lie. And I thought that that was one of the single most revealing things I'd ever heard a, a major politician say to me. That, 
And I think what he meant by that was, I, Boris Johnson, know what's in the best interests for the vast majority of people, and therefore when I lie, it's for your good. Now, the problem comes when... And he didn't for- say that in Latin. No, no, this is This is interesting. There's been not so much Greek and Latin knocking around in the last couple of weeks. I've been rather short, feel short-changed. <laughs> I quite like those rather formulaic, classical sort of um, allusions and references. I mean, it's, it's, it's what I look for in my prime ministers. It probably worked you out. You're more a Scarface person than a Latin person, so I went for that. I am more of a, like, gangster film. I do like... Uh, I love The Departed. I love Goodfellas. Um, but I think it's... in it Because I think that the problem comes because I believe that Boris Johnson and lots of old Etonians are very, very good at playing the game, but the problem is is that they've been equipped to play it so well that they tend to think of everything as a game. So politics is this enormous strategic fun game of chess that you can play and have your jolly mates around to play it. And actually, it fundamentally affects the everyday life of everyone in this country. And my my issue with Boris Johnson is when he puts self-interest above the good of the country, and and I feel like he, he doesn't have a very clear delineation between the two. And you felt that when you interviewed him when he was Mayor of London? Yes. Interesting. I mean, that takes us on to kind of the big news of this week, which is Boris Johnson has achieved his life's ambition, or what I think is his life's ambition. I mean, his sister said he wanted to be world king when he was younger, so maybe this is just a first step to something else. Um, I, I mean, the question for all of us is what do we make of the debut, presentationally, in terms of substance? Philip, do you want to, do you want to well, go first? I, mean, I, I I think he's desperately trying to be more serious. Um, I think they've sort of sharpened his look up a bit. I think it's... But ultimately, I mean, I I saw part... I wasn't in for the statement this morning, but I saw part of it, and it's still the same act. It's still... There's not a huge amount of substance there. There's not much... Details are not important. And at the moment, I guess, when you're having your honeymoon and it's... Let's be, let's, let's be fair, he is a sort of a, 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 a change from his predecessor. And so therefore he, he, it, it feels lighter and more enjoyable. But what worries me is, is that, as you've already alluded to Michel Barnier, the reality of the situation hardly, hasn't really got a functioning majority. Brexit isn't sorted out, etc., etc. I... I I don't know how long this honeymoon will last. Can I, can I try a theory on our both of you? So uh, you said he's a change from his predecessor. I think clearly, stylistically, Boris Johnson and Theresa May is like night and day. But I actually see lots of things that are quite similar. You know, when Theresa May became, first became prime minister, she was the new Iron Lady, and um, she was going to crush the saboteurs, and she got rid of George Osborne, the Chancellor at the time, and um, she brought in um, Liam Fox, David Davis, and Boris Johnson into the Cabinet. She got rid of everyone who was associated with the Cameroons and their kind of super government, as it were. And the reaction was, my God, she's tough, and Brexit means Brexit. And I'm looking at the first 24 hours of Boris Johnson, and I think... That's actually not very different, except that it's on, uh, it's turbocharged. You know, it's Theresa May on um, rocket fuel. So Brexit means Brexit, a Brexit-only cabinet, fire lots of people. And I kind of 
looked at it and thought, this is, we've seen this movie before, it's just different characters. Does that theory kind of make sense? It does. And actually, I remember Theresa May's first speech, and it was really good. <laughs> the one she was. she was just elected Prime Minister. And so I think the first speech is always the easiest. It's like, as a novelist, I know that the first sentence and the first paragraph is always the easiest to write in the entire book. Because is it? You're, yeah, because then you're not, you're not bogged down by all the difficult plot things that you've accidentally written in. <laughs> you're not bogged down by the complexity of the narrative. So you can sort of start literally with a blank page. Um, but I think the interesting difference is that I believe, and you can tell me more about it, that Theresa May was bogged down with detail, that she would pour over every single document to the detriment of the efficient running of the civil service. Whereas Boris Johnson, it strikes me, doesn't really care that much about the detail. He's much more of a broad-brush, impasto oil painter. And I sincerely hope that he delegates to people who are good at the detail. Um, so I feel, I mean, do you, what, what's the likelihood of that? Guys. Well, I, I, I have a, a, another. So I was um, theorist. So I was parliamentary private secretary to David Cameron. So I saw at close hand what the day of a prime minister looks like. And I think this idea that as a prime minister can delegate um, is actually uh, slightly misleading. Uh, my, my, my experience of watching David Cameron is pri being a prime minister is like being in an, in an asteroid shower. You know, you get up in the morning, overnight there's some news you have to respond to, you have a meeting at 8.30 in the morning and um, you have to decide on lots of government business in 40 minutes. By the end of the, that morning meeting, I wish the Chancellor will be there, the Cabinet Secretary will be there, the Chief of Staff will be there, sort of all the key people in the government. By the end of that meeting, there's another crisis they've got to deal with. By the time, so they'll have to have a full-on meeting when they finish that. If it's a Wednesday, a Wednesday, for example, Prime Minister's questions, the Prime Minister literally has to sit down and work out the answers to likely questions in the House of Commons. So I think you need so good people anyway, but I, I think you, you've got to engage, you've got to engage with it. So much relies on your judgment on an, a minute by minute, hour by hour basis. I think that's your view. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't had your experience at the centre. Um, and I, I, my wife has, and Catherine has as a sort of servant working for previous prime ministers. And I think it is that balance between light touch, not getting too sucked into the detail, but also just keeping an eye on the strategic direction of government. If I reflect back to my time in the MOJ, I was the last man standing. There were eight ministerial colleagues in the time I was there. I had three secretaries of state. And I remember the change between my first and my second was quite remarkable. The air in the department totally changed. The whole atmosphere, the way it was managed, the... Um, it was a real education in how you led, properly lead in a department that had many, many challenges, as you know, Sam. And I learned within a matter of weeks how, you know, so much from the person who came in because it just completely changed. And we actually became much more productive as, as juniors. It was, it was a totally different experience to my first Secretary of State. And... Um, you know, I reflect upon the fact that the person I learnt so much from has just left government, and the person I didn't learn so much from is 
still in cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I asked myself... The squad feeling know, upwards. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to how, you know, how to fail, how do you succeed in politics when an objective assessment of the two individuals I'm referring to, you would have had one, you'd have kept one, but not the other. Um, and I think, you know, no, no civil servant's going to go on the record saying it, but I can tell you it's pretty obvious in the department's what the department thought. Um, this is the real challenge that people like Sam and I in politics face. I mean, tell me, what's it like being a writer? Is it, you know, you're Elizabeth, you're a journalist, you're a successful novelist. Do you think that it's meritocratic your business or do you think you still have also the same challenges of whether you're good or not is not really the point it's whether your face fits or uh i mean i think it's probably less like that than politics but the interesting thing about writing books is that and actually creating a podcast is that i am in control of my output and i can deliver a project and it's essentially down to me the individual I would find it incredibly frustrating if I were trying to deliver a project and then it relied on the machinations of a sort of superstructure. I, I interviewed Jamie Oliver recently, and um, not just to name drop, but um, he was talking about... But his, you have. Um, I mean... It works. So soon. Go for it. <laughs> but I interviewed Jamie, he was a lovely man, and um, he was saying about his school dinners initiative, so he famously tried to campaign to make school dinners healthier. And during the time that he ran that campaign, he went through nine ministers of education and five wow. prime ministers. And he said, you know, the problem is, is that a new minister of education will come in and they'll have the best of intentions, but they're green and they need to sort of get up to speed and they need to take time to learn it. Yeah. Whereas Jamie Oliver and his team are campaigning on it full time. And so they know what they're talking about. And that was always the problem, was sort of getting someone up to speed. And that takes a bit of time. And then by the time you've done that, you're basically out of office again. <laughs> I think uh, that's so true. I remember Tony Blair saying something, I'm probably going to paraphrase him wrongly, but he said prime ministers come into office when they're least experienced and they leave office when they're most experienced. In other words, what you're saying is when they actually get to know the job and they can make judgments, that's when often the public ties of them or their party ties of them and they, they move on. But I think the basic thing, I mean, what we, I think we're all saying is you need good people if you're going to run a country that's the seventh largest economy in the world. But you can't delegate everything. You've got to be fully engaged. And um, I guess... The it's about experience, Sam. I mean, I'm actually quite encouraged that a man with grey hair is chief of staff. Um, what's this obsession with youth when it comes to government? I mean, I... I you know, I'm, what, my 48? I, I sort of reflect upon how was I in my 30s? And yet I've looked on at people in their 30s being cabinet ministers, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not so sure in my 30s it would have been the right time for me. I think going back, actually, the theme of failing and learning from your mistakes, you know, wisdom is rarely found in young people. That's sort of criticism. It's underrated. People. Wisdom invariably is accrued by people as they grow older. Right? It's just the nature of things. You make mistakes, you learn from it. You become wiser to how to handle certain situations. And it seems odd, because I, I always thought David Cameron was a very able person, but got it too young. I think Blair, if he'd have got it when he lost, lost it, probably would have been a historic... He would have been minister. a better prime minister, definitely. Um, and I, I think we probably... It's interesting, Thatcher was, nine, was 52 when she got it. She was that bit older. And if you look at some of the US presidents, 
Reagan, much older. I do wonder whether we we obs- uh, maybe this maybe this is social media. Maybe this is about obsession with youth and all the other sort of superficialities of modern life that almost get encouraged by the immediate communication and instant gratification stuff. Maybe politics, we should all just sort of step back and go, do you know what, why don't we go and have a life? Why don't we go and have families? Why don't we have a career? Why don't we work? And then we dedicate the last 20 years of our of our working careers to the service of our country. Instead of the current situation, where you've got people who are sort of turning up in Westminster shortly after conception. And, and it's like, how can they be wise? How can they... We, we haven't got Pitt the Younger yet, but I'll carry on. <laughs> I mean, there's a balance, isn't there? Because I have been listening over the last few months to Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and John Major, Michael Hesselzine, and listening to them on the radio thinking, oh my gosh, thank God we have some elder yeah. statesmen talking some sense. Tony Blair, for me, has been so much more impressive out of office than he was in it. And I think there is, again, like such a, a gap for that and a yearning for it. But then you run the risk of being told that you're out of touch so I do think that there's a balance that's necessary where maybe maybe you need to have a specific minister for youth is there such a thing well no, uh, but, uh, look I, I, I uh, hear you but when I ran for the leadership at 42 I thought I was ready <laughs> so um, I think we, we don't I, I don't want to overdo wow, the age Sam, then you're 42 42 uh, do I look older or younger you than look I am? younger oh, yeah, no, no, 42. That wasn't a word, but that was like a wow that's young to run for leadership because I can say that because <laughs> I'm in my 41st year now and just the idea of running I mean all kudos to you but that's well I think it's it's about it's about it's uh, the difficult thing with all of this is when you feel the ideas you've got meet the challenges of the time and you, 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 you want to express them. And I run for leader knowing that I wasn't going to win, by the way. And I think where Philip and I are on this is the ideas we've got in terms of the direction of the country match the challenge of the time. And we thought we couldn't articulate that position while staying in government. So the best way to do it is to get out of government and make the case. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a lonely path. And maybe the only way, running for leadership is not the only way to do it. I want to just change the subject slightly um, and explore this idea of optimism because the big theme for um, Boris Johnson this week is optimism and obviously the opposite of optimism is pessimism so anybody who's against him is pessimistic he's optimistic for the country and um, I personally feel that optimism is absolutely necessary it's infectious it's what you need but when optimism turns into reality distortion. Yes. How do you deal with it? But Elizabeth, you've dealt with failing optimism. Kind of how do those things go together? Well, I think that optimism without evidence is mere foolishness. So I think that optimism without anything to it, without any substance beneath it, runs the risk of, be, of becoming fake news. And we do live terrifyingly in a post-fact world where moods are more contagious than facts. <laughs> and even yesterday I heard a headline on the BBC Radio 4 6 o'clock news and it was a headline 
line describing Boris Johnson as one of the most charismatic politicians of his generation. Now, to me, the idea of someone being charismatic is an opinion and not and shouldn't be in, in a headline of a news bulletin. And I just think every single day there's there's this sort of blurring of delineation and it we run the risk of getting much too carried away and forgetting that for all the optimism in the world, as you said, Philip, it only goes so far. You actually need to back it up with talent and skill and collaboration and a plan. Having said that, it is very attractive because over the last couple of days, as much as I, you know, I'm, I'm not, it won't shock you to hear, a Tory voter and nor do I support the notion of Boris Johnson as our Prime Minister or a no-deal Brexit. And yet, when I heard him speak, I didn't hate it as much as I thought I would because <laughs> actually it was quite nice having someone being upbeat for a change. <laughs> yeah, but people like being optimistic. Philip, are you optimistic? Yeah, are you an optimist? Is probably a better, better, better way of framing the question. Look, I try to be. My problem is, is that I've, I've, I've applied logic to politics in the last twelve months. What a fool's error! It's been a errand. dreadful, dreadful <laughs> mistake. Why on earth would you do that? I'm just, I'm just a naive sort of tall guy. It's because you're too young. Exactly. Where's this logic coming from? I sort of desperately crave a sort of a positive outlook um, but I'm struggling because you know I I resigned because I thought the Brexit the people were going to get was not what the Brexit that they were promised and that's why I, I did what I did and and I felt really quite strongly about it because I had friends and family who'd been sold something and I thought no they've been misled and the way they spoke about what they'd voted for didn't fit with the reality of what was coming. And uh, I, I... Now, how do I do that and be optimistic? I mean, I, I sort of... I'm optimistic that the country, if given another opportunity to vote, will be in a better position to make a decision, whatever that decision is. Um, and I've always been really careful not to sort of say, oh, it's going to be Remain, blah, blah. I actually, I don't think you can assert that with full confidence. I think, personally, I think that's what will happen, but, you know, maybe I'm wrong. But actually what I want to be is confident that the public have consented in a proper way. And, I, I, I you know, I think when we get through that... Yeah. I can be optimistic about the future, whatever actually the outcome is. And if people vote and embrace No Deal and think, fantastic, I want this for my country, I can, I can almost sort of move on and, and sort of shed this sense of, I don't know, responsibility that I feel that I can't sanction this. I can't back it because it's just not what I think people were promised. It's based on an inverted pyramid of piffle to quote our Prime Minister. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but do, do you think there's a danger with optimism that those of us who feel um, the referendum or sort of the Brexit settlement is not delivering what people voted for come across as the pessimists and the those who are advocating leave, whatever you think, are the optimists. Yes. And how damaging is that to our cause? Oh, it really is. I mean, I, I look ahead and think if we do get, and it's a big if, to going back to the public with this, I am really worried about the, how the Remain camp will counter this. 
because it's so sort of oh you know you've got to believe it's all very sort of it's wrapping yourself in the flag it's like you know it's it's britain rule britannia we can do this thing we can put a man on the moon you know but all this sort of bollocks and i and i just think but it's not realistic it's not true it's it, it's 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 misleading people and i i don't know whether it's because of my what i do as another job i just can't bring myself to subscribe to that i'd want to deal with evidence facts if somebody's in front of me and they're not well i don't want to tell them oh you got to be fine just you've got to believe yeah you know that tumor that's growing and is metastasizing you just got to believe i mean it's like it's, it's quite difficult for a doctor I to do that do it you know because it's in me i just think no i'd rather be truthful or honest with this person and say look these are the choices can i do i want to get to a stage where i can be optimistic and be all strategic about my country and the world and do everything that i want to do coming into politics yes but I think in view of the fact the public are deeply mistrustful of, of politics in general, I don't think you garner trust by continuing to mislead. You've got to be straight with people, secure their trust by being straight, and then promise sunny, sunny uplands, then move on to the positivity. I think the other way is, is for charlatans and fraudsters, and I'm not doing it. I, I, I think it's important that Remainers try to capture optimism. And, um, and there is something strange in the hard Brexit position, and, and, and Widdicombe best exemplifies this when she said we had been enslaved by the EU, sort of ignoring the fact that you know we are the top table with France and Germany. And um, but she, she said we'd been enslaved, and we needed to come out of slavery to realise our. How did you feel about that? Destiny. Um, tell me, how did you feel about that? <laughs> well, well the, the idea that you know um, all those slaves, you know, in times yeah. past, if only they had had the Article 50 to trigger exactly. to get, get out of bondage, <laughs> you know, and that would have been fine. Exactly. It is totally ridiculous um, a statement. But, well, but what struck me is how, on the one hand, she was saying we're a victim, but at the same time, she was saying that she owned optimism. And I kind of think that's one of those... I haven't, really haven't got my head around how they can play both of those, playing the victim card, but at the same time saying they own optimism. And I, But I do think that the Remain side needs to articulate a view of what Britain would look like um, and how it would make people's lives better. Otherwise, we sound like we're just being carping from the sidelines about a democratic result we didn't like. Yes. I agree with you. I think that the, the negative narrative of what will happen if we leave the EU has been... Um, has been talked about endlessly and actually the challenge is positive storytelling but I think optimism and pessimism are the same in many respects as failure and success because they're flip sides of the same coin you can't really have one without the other so I, I completely agree with what Philip was saying it's like you you can have optimism but you need um, the pessimism of reality and accepting reality as it is first and so hard-headed is, optimism yes essentially. exactly life is difficult the Buddhists say life is suffering you know we are all flawed individuals we can't just ignore that in fact we can seek connection by being honest about our flaws by being honest about the fact that this isn't going to be a walk in the park that will as you say just garner so much more trust in our yeah, elected I mean, representatives I, I, I mean patients know that they're flawed you come in they sort of tell you their story and it doesn't often sort of i think reflect what they're probably telling their friends and family 
um, human beings are flawed, but human organisations, by the, by definition, therefore have to be flawed, don't they? So the European Union is flawed. The United Nations is flawed. NATO is flawed. You know, all of these organisations that involve people working together, particularly if they come from different countries, different cultures, different backgrounds, whatever, they're going to be flawed. So, so what is it that we? It's all very well. We've got a, a, you know being blindly positive and aspiring for purity. It doesn't exist. Human beings fail. Human beings make mistakes. I, you know, that's just reality. And that's learning. Yeah. That's what the accumulation of wisdom and experience is. Unless you make mistakes, unless you fail, you will never understand, you'll never learn. Inside every failure is a lesson wrapped up in a mistake. That's very wise for someone in their 41st year. <laughs> Thank you. Have you ever thought about a career in politics? <laughs> I, mean, yes. I, I would like to talk... Cause Run for before leader. I, before I get somewhere. wholly sidelined by just spouting platitudes, <laughs> um, I would like to talk about the one major difference between Boris Johnson and Theresa May, which is that Boris Johnson is a man and Theresa May was a woman, and his attitude to women, which I find distinctly troubling. So um, it's not just what might or might not have happened behind closed doors in that flat at Cam- in Camberwell where he was recorded with raised voices and all sorts. It's not just that. It's a historic sense that he has had a series of extramarital affairs. And again, I'm not moralising. I'm not judging him for that. I'm judging him for the way that he's handled it or rather not handled it. The fact that he is capable of lying to his wife, lying to his romantic partners, um, that he is capable of having children and not acknowledging them publicly and that he wrote this ridiculous novel called something like 72 virgins in <laughs> a few years ago and in it there were just like the succession of descriptions of women as quote a mega titted six footer <laughs> quote loads of pretty white teeth good teeth and blonde hair an unambiguously exuberant bosom wasn't One that just a form of escapism on his part though sorry a form of escapism yes but it might well have been but i think the truth comes out in what you write if you you might be putting it in the voice of a character but in much the same way as when you've had a drink too many you actually start to reveal your true colors i i feel that i'm I'm not sure about his attitude to women and i'd be interested to hear what you both think whether it's unreconstructed or whether i'm being too unfair on him i think people would be surprised by the views social sort of attitudinal sort of views within the conservative party in general um it's not you know I, I find myself sometimes looking back on 20 30 years thinking i've had to tolerate quite a lot and observe things and go with the flow a bit and so i'm not so sure that he's so out of step right well that's worrying and i you know um you know when you join a political party like I did 27 years ago, um, over 27 years ago, I, you know, it, there's a degree of compromise. When you go to vote, there's a degree of compromise. I feel like I've sometimes hung on in there um, and I'm reflecting upon that at the moment. The problem is, is that you go to another party, there will be other compromises and again it gets back to the point that political parties are human organizations and flawed and what have you i do share your concern about the sort of rather flippant 
somewhat self-centered, shall we say, approach to life. Um, and I don't think I'm alone in that. I've just spent the day being a doctor um, and I didn't meet anybody in my large GP surgery that was enthusiastic about what was happening. Yeah. And, I mean, I use medicine to sort of keep in touch with reality, Elizabeth, to a great extent. Um, and I can't lose sight of the fact that my party doesn't feel like it's in step with modern Britain on lots of different fronts. It's not just on the, the, what you referred to. I think it's in lots of other ways. Um, what, do, what, what do we, what Sam and I do about this? What can we do to change this? Um, it's, it's difficult. Um, there's, a, there's a difference between urban and rural. There's a difference between north, south, east and west. Britain is a diverse place socially, eth you know, ethnically and everything else. Um, but yes, I think I can sort of, I have sympathy with your doubt. Um, I want to know, before I forget, what you ate when, uh, on that curry evening. Like, what kind of curry did you have? What kind of oh, curry did he have? Oh, I did he order I the Peshwari naan? I, I can't remember. <laughs> there was actually Peshwari naan there, I think, actually. Ooh, and fancy. I think there was a biryani. Um, all I remember it, um, was that it was, the, it was pretty evident that there'd been lots of curries uh, being delivered by the chap who turned up <laughs> <laughs> with the takeaway curry. Um, I, uh, I can't remember what the Prime Minister was eating. Um, he sat opposite me, I remember that, and I sat next to his uh, then wife. Um, Did he have good table manners? Yes. And he was interested to know what I thought, as well as, well as other colleagues. I wasn't special. Um, and I think he was just sort of, you know, trying to work out where we all were. Um, I'm not sure whether he knows where I am now. They were in the Feathers. I mean, in the I, Feathers I, I mean, on I, Broadway. You know, I, I, I've had a couple of conversations with him in the last two weeks. And, you know, the frustrating thing for me is, is I suspect on domestic issues, we're probably quite close. He's, he's actually a liberal, conservative, and yet he's found himself rather oddly supporting Brexit, um, which I don't think is consistent with that view. Um, so I probably would find common ground on a number of things. Um, but the elephant in the room at the moment makes it difficult for me um, to to be supportive because I don't support Nadia Brexit. I mean, Philip, you, we're very perceptive. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> you know him better than I do, but he gives me a good impression of being very perceptive. Do you think he's going to go for no deal? Um, I think that his... His inheritance is, is next to impossible. Um, my view is, is that he is going to have to turn to the country at some point. Um, I, would, I would counsel that he'd be better off dealing with a single issue in a referendum than a, than a general election. I worry that his advisers and backers and everybody else are encouraging him to go to a general election to sort this out, probably encouraged by the fact that the Labour leader is seemingly unelectable so I suspect if the Labour Party actually manages to change its leader in the next few months the calculations in number 10 will change overnight um, 
but I do I think he really wants to do no no I don't I don't think he wants to do no deal but I don't think he actually wants to Brexit so um, oh wow what you mean yeah. he doesn't believe in Brexit he wants revoke uh, I mean, Article I, I, it in a self-interested way would be my personal take I, I think I think Allow me. I, that's, I think, that's, a, that's a big statement. Yeah, no, I, think, I think he probably calculated in February 2016, I'll campaign for Brexit and lose, going back to failing, Elizabeth. Yes. And then I'll be the, the darling of the Tory membership because I would have sort of fought the good fight but lost. I think he backed it thinking he would lose. And then he knew that um, when it came to going to the country... Um, the membership would be um, backing him wholeheartedly. And I think that's why he did it. Um, and, and I'll always think that. I'm interested, Sam, and I hesitate to ask you this because I realise that you are not the spokesman on all things race, but he has appointed a relatively diverse cabinet, and yet this is someone who writes in newspaper columns of people with watermelon smiles and so on and so forth. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm not... I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to try to try to analyse him. Um, I think Boris, I mean, he's mayor of London. I think he gets the value of having a diverse cabinet. But the, I guess the question is, how do you divorce Boris the columnist, you know, who, from Boris the politician? You know, the, com- the columnist who can't resist, like a comedian, what he thinks is a good punchline, um, whatever the consequences are. And um, the politician who is setting a standard, and you divorce those two. I mean, how do I feel about it? I'm not clearly not in his cabinet. I don't want to be in his cabinet. If he had offered me a job in his cabinet, I would have said no. But I would have said no not because of what he's said about race, particularly in the past. But I'm not going to take the No Deal pledge. You know, I resigned from government. You know. I voted against Theresa May's deal and I voted against No Deal at every opportunity. I couldn't bring myself to uh, support that pledge. Just changing the subject, what most people want to know from us is what do we think is going to happen? So we've got a new Prime Minister, he's come up with his Brexit policy, deep down you don't think he's going to do no deal. No, I think he doesn't what do we, want to. You don't, you don't think, but, but, but what, think what do we think is going to happen? I think he wants to stay in power. This That's is interesting, yeah, yeah. So, so, so it starts so, from there. So to stay in power, more than one option, but I think the option that's being pushed upon him is define yourself as the Britain going into battle, teach these continentals a lesson, and if they don't want us, we're going to go off and do our It's own not going thing. to work, though, is it? Yeah, but then go to the electorate and say, do you want this Chichilian type leader? I think um, you said Chinchillian, like Chinchilla. Like Chinchilla. <laughs> Did you do you want a Churchillian <laughs> leader, Elizabeth? <laughs> Just not a Churchillian. <laughs> <laughs> if we all got a free chinchilla with no deal, that would be I'm, a lot harder. Yeah, I'd vote for it. Yeah. 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 Um, but no, this sort of sense of him standing up to the Continentals, and then the alternative is Jeremy Corbyn. 
I think they think they can win that election juxtaposing those two things um, and I think I fear that's what he might do because that's that's really interesting because my theory is it's very hard to have a general election before the 31st of October unless see the government is brought down because the difficulty for him is how do you have a general election on a hard Brexit platform when the Liberal Democrats are breathing down our necks. So his ideal situation is, by hook or by crook, get us out of the EU on the 31st and hold a general election soon afterwards. If he doesn't do that and he has an extension, because Parliament basically imposes that on him, that the government is also at risk at that point because he's defined this government's mission as leaving on the 31st. So you have two possible outcomes. One is leave without a deal and then you're probably going to have a general election quite soon afterwards or have an extension and that leads to a general election. I think what's going to be strange about whatever election there is is it's going to be a mishmash if it happened before the 31st. Is It's going to be a referendum in all but name because it will be leave remain and I think some of the Johnson advisers are hoping that the Remain forces are divided and they can do a deal with the Brexit party and unite the Leave forces. Whether that will work or not, I think, depends so much on the other player this week who we haven't discussed, which is the new leader of the Liberal Democrats, Joe Swinson, and what impact we think she is going to make um, on politics. Does, it, does, does anyone have a sense of that? What do you think of Joseph's I think it's great that there is one leader of the main political parties who is a woman, and a woman who has campaigned on issues such as maternity leave and has been at the forefront of those sort of feminist battles that I, um, I think the Liberal Democrats should be fighting. I don't know that much about her otherwise. Um, she seems really young. How old is she? she... She's in her 30s, isn't she? Right. I, I, I agree with you. I think she's ready to lead. I think um, I think it's challenging for the, the Liberal Democrats to have gone with somebody at the early stage of their political career, in many ways, at a time where they potentially could springboard up in reaction to No Deal Brexit. And I think you know we're going to find out in the next six months. I think she's going to be on a massive learning curve actually in leadership terms um, I I don't know her that well um, she's a pleasant person um, and I, I, I wish her luck and everything and you know it's a challenging time to be taking it on I think the difficulty at the moment I sort of feel politics is like plate tectonics and the plates are moving around and I don't know how you feel, Sam, but I feel like I'm sort of straddling the San Andreas fault of the Conservative Party at the moment. And, it, and it's which way is it going? Um, and it's all wrapped up with Brexit, obviously. Um, and the Lib Dems are sitting there at the moment as the repository for, broadly speaking, southern educated managerial professional class who hate Brexit. Yeah, obviously there's more to it than that, but you know what I mean. So they're picking up support across the whole of Southern England and, in particularly, in London, in the southwest, the southwest through the whole southeast, southwest. And I'm sure they are elsewhere, but there is this sense that there is a, you know, there are four to five million Tory voters who voted Remain, and in my experience in Bracknell, they're really fed up. 
they're not happy at all and what do they do and I think um, Joe Swinson's got to try to harness that for her political gain which I think will shape the Liberal Democrats policy pitch because they're actually pitching to a slightly right of centre um, voter or people who voted to in the past and I think that's going to be an interesting tension with their membership that's to my mind, I don't know what you think, has always been slightly left of centre. And I think that tension, she's going to have to straddle that. And I don't think that's straightforward. But, you know, they may... She is benefiting from Labour's lack of clarity on Brexit. Yeah. And and that's a huge thing. And on the age thing, I mean, the Liberal Democrats tried Vince Cable and now they swung to the other end of the age spectrum, arguably. I, I think I'd quite like to be a bit positive about Jo Swinson. Um, she lost her seat. So she was a minister in the coalition. She lost her seat, fought the same seat and got back into parliament. So she's clearly a gritty campaigner. And so she's not only different as in the only woman who's leading one of the main political parties in Westminster, but she's, she's quite a gritty campaigner from uh, Scotland. And um, they, have a, they have a clear pitch. And I, I, what I feel about where politics is going now is a clarity of your message is really important. You know, the Brexit party is for Brexit and the Liberal Democrats are against Brexit. And where the two main parties are struggling is the Conservatives are for Brexit, but not the Brexit party, really. And Labour can't decide whether it's for Brexit or against Brexit. And I I suspect if the Liberal Democrats were to do well, one of the reasons why they will do well, even in in a general, general election that is more like a referendum, is it's very clear what the offer is. What do you reckon? tempted to defect the Liberal Democrats. This is the true test <laughs> of how attractive a... Well, I think... I, I mean, I, I can speak for myself. I, At the moment, I'm, I'm increasingly feeling politically homeless. And I, in the party I joined was the party of John Major. And John Major, I think, is probably feeling like this, judging by his contributions in recent weeks. I think the Within British politics, it's always been rather bipolar, blue corner, red corner, and that hasn't changed. There's been a few occasional upticks for the Lib Dems, and then they've collapsed again, and then they've come up again. Um, And so if you're in politics to want to do things, you ideally want to be in one of those camps, because that's how the power tends to swing between those two. The problem at the moment is is that both of the major parties are sort of polarising, their base is narrowing their support really true and and so for me it's yeah I mean I I, I'm not comfortable I'm I'm really not comfortable about about my party pushing for no deal Brexit without proper consent of the public purely on a national interest I think it's wrong to do this Um, but party politically I think it's narrowing our base in a way that I don't see how we win elections and if you don't win elections in a democracy you don't have power and you can't do the things you want to do it's just simple simple reality and so you know I'm sort of sitting here just looking on and just yeah I'm going to spend the summer thinking a lot I think Elizabeth I mean where I stand on this is I think I haven't changed it's my party that's changed 
and um, politically I'm exactly where I was and I was uh, where I was when I first joined the party and where I was when I was first elected as an MP in 2010. I am a pro-business, pro-aspiration uh, conservative that also believes in social justice and we won, last time I checked we won our first majority in a quarter of a century on that platform and I think that is the only way in which the Conservative Party can win a majority. But I was at an event in my constituency last week where the last question, and this gentleman had clearly been uh, waiting to ask this question, and when he said, how can you be someone who supports Remain and be a Conservative? And I, I think to him, he felt this was the sucker punch. You know, Sam, I've got you. And um, I sort of reminded him that, by the way, this single market, which Conservatives hate so much, was um, the the um, the height of Thatcher's economic reform. She had domestic reform, and then the domestic reform resulted in helping create the European single market, which is why a lot of Japanese car manufacturers decided to locate themselves here as a bridge into Europe. And the reason why Conservatives have been successful is on the economy, we've always gone for competence, sometimes a bit boring, whereas a no-deal Brexit is about throwing the economic cards up in the air. So in a, in a roundabout way, my answer to this gentleman was, where I stand is what real conservatism is. Where he stands, I don't recognize that as conservatism. I don't believe that conservatism is about ripping up institutions in pursuit of it's a utopian future. Conservative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, so I don't have any desire to move now, but the honest truth is, um, for whatever reason, and I think it's a second referendum has become a third real issue in the Conservative Party, but no deal, which is an extreme option, has been normalised. And I think actually it should be the other way around. <laughs> Conservatives should be more ready to think, reflect and ask again, rather than throw everything up in the air. So what are we going to do outside of prorogation, general election, no deal Brexit? Over the next few weeks? Over the next few weeks, yes. I am desperately trying to get away. Because on I think, holiday. Yeah, <laughs> on holiday. Not from us. I think it's always healthy to get perspective. And just step back and just think things through. And the problem with Westminster, you know, I, I work long hours as a hospital doctor, 100 hours plus a week. All juniors do this. So I've done a hard job, a tough job, and all that, that came with that. But there's something uniquely wearing about public office, about the constant 24-hour wearing social media, sort of journalist inquiries, the constant analysis of what you say, if you drop the ball, if you make a mistake, all those sorts of things, that actually doesn't... It's not good for physical and mental health. And it's not good for decision-making. You, you actually need time and time away to reflect. You and see, I, I would countenance that that's something you could share on Instagram. 
I think people would massively relate to that because actually a lot of people are thinking these bloody politicians swanning off on a month's holiday, it's all right for the likes of them, don't they have to deal with Brexit? And actually, if you, Philip Lee, posted this thing saying, this is why I'm going on holiday because it's for these reasons, it's good for our mental health. And I think that would really re- well, I, people I, would relate I, 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 to it. I give an example. When I became a minister, I hadn't expected to become a minister that summer because I, I just didn't think it was going to happen. Um, and I had booked a holiday away with my family. So I'd become a minister and I've still got this rather long holiday driving around Europe booked. And I said, I'm still going. And I remember my private office going, oh, you know, you can't do that. And I said, well, no, I'm going because I've booked for it, whatever. Um, I'll take some stuff with me and I'll read. And they gave me a load of stuff to read. And I, um, it was all on an iPad. And you know what, Elizabeth, it was the best thing I did because I came back having been away and I actually had gone through my entire really odd brief. Sam's was much easier. You just had prisons and probation. That was it, wasn't it? You had two areas. Amateur, me, Sam. Me, on the other hand. <laughs> and, 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 and a riot every month. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me on the other, I had like, like 15, 15 small areas. And, and there was no way anybody could actually affect change in every area. So I had to make some decisions about what I could do. And I decided on three or four things that I thought, OK, I'm going to put some effort into trying to change this. Women's justice, sport and the criminal justice system, youth justice. There was um, just three or four things. I would not have done that. Um, and it's for others to decide whether it was effective or not. I would not have done that if I hadn't gone away on holiday and just stepped away from the, the hurly-burly and the, the, the frenetic nature of a very demanding ministry across the road from where we're sat. And it was the best thing I ever did. So I would say to all of these newly elected, just sort of um, selected ministers today, and there are lots of junior ministers finding out today, go away on holiday. Go away, take a big box of stuff, and sit on a beach and think. Because the, the reality is most things just manage themselves because government is complex. But there are certain areas where you can actually push and change. And I think you will only know which areas to do that in by actually thinking about it and taking time. Um, the best ministers I've seen him operate are the ones who step back. Yeah, the ones who get into the nitty-gritty, into the detail, I wouldn't appoint. Right. So, what, what am I going to do? <laughs> well, um, I just started Fleabag. I can't believe I've missed it. One of my former so, guests on How Fail. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm going to finish that. And that'll probably be the first two nights of the holiday. I'll just binge watch. The fir- I found the first series really... I couldn't. I, it was all about sex, and I was, I was really struggling to watch it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to binge oh, watch the whole thing. Such an innocent... And, um, and then just have fun with... Just have fun. Just tune out of politics for a bit. And um, I think I've got to the stage where after... Um, a full term in Parliament, I just need to disengage. And um, Brexit is important, we've got to resolve it, but I just need to recharge for a bit. So no Twitter. So if you see me retweeting anything in the next couple of weeks, feel free to tell me off. From Brexit to rest it. Exactly. To breast it. No, that doesn't work. (laughs) Scrap that. (laughs) Well, that's all from me, uh, Sam Jeeman. And for me, Philip Lee, and from our guest... Elizabeth Day. Thank you for listening. Thank you. On the House was presented by Dr Philip Lee MP and Sam Jima MP. 
Audio production was by me, Alex Reese, and the producer is Andrew Harrison. On the House is a Podmasters production.